The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Welcome back to another episode of Shaken and Stirred. I'm Nigel Barker in Woodstock, New York, and I'm joined by my best friend and uh, co-host, Tom Astor. Hey, Tom, how are you, mate? Hey, nice. Good. All good here in England. We've got some snows coming, so we're very excited because we don't get it very often. Nice. No, man, I'm playing snowball fights and stuff, you know? So you've got proper snow. You've got snow that you could roll into snowballs and stuff. Well, we did for about four or five hours this morning. It's melted now, though. But we were excited. We woke up this morning and there was snow, so it was a, it was a good day. That, that is basically what it's like. English snow is like. I remember growing up, I can probably count on one hand the amount of times it actually snowed when I was a kid in England, and you could run out and do anything with it, as, other than sort of just, you know, just see it. I literally, maybe only once or twice in my life growing up as a kid, did we ever build a snowman because there was enough snow. Yeah, exactly. But it's fun when it happens. And how's, um, how's upstate New York covered in the stuff? I am actually looking at snow right now. In fact, we have so much snow in upstate New York that we don't even go out and do anything at all, actually. I mean, we, we, it's permanently on the ground where we are because we're up in the Catskills. Very, very pretty. Snow everywhere. Four days of proper snow falling this week. Kids are skiing every weekend. I mean, it's just a part of the lifestyle up here. So it's what a difference. I mean, I've had to learn to ski in my sort of forties, and, and you know, now as you know, I've only just about managed to pretty much stand up. But I, I do get down the mountain one way or another. I tell you what, we're going to get you down the mountain soon because a friend of mine organises this uh, World Cup experience where you go, and I've done it a couple of times, and it's in in the French Alps in Maribel. And last time we did it, it was a day after the World Championships. So you'd had Lindsay Vaughn had been there. I think she just won the female downhill. So it's the same course, and you get the course yourself, and there are about four or five of you doing it, and you get instruction from um, the pros. I had a guy taking me down who's called Antoine Denarias, who won gold in the Olympics in Turin in 2007 or something. And you get strap on your downhill skis. And you go downhill skiing and you do it properly. And you literally downhill, you, the whole course is cleared. So obviously it's safe. As my friend said to me. It would have to be cleared, by the way, if you were going downhill. Well, that dude. Just never know where you, my friend said to me, he said, this is never a safer time to ski. Look, we have four nets stick. You know, they have the proper nets for the downhill. Anyway, I did it. But on the way up of the chairlift, the top, I heard Denarias. We were sitting there, this champion turned around to my friend. And I can speak French, so I understood what he was saying. He said. He summarized my friend, he said, do you think this is a good idea? <laughs> and I looked at my friend and I was like, yeah, why would he say that? You know, and they all looked a bit sort of sheepish and French about it, you know, and just anyway, we ended up doing it was, I've got to say, the most exhilarating and the most terrifying thing I've ever done. And you're literally going 70 miles an hour. I mean, you were going speed, you're stats of downhill skis on you. And I wanted one of those like skin tight suits that they put on, you know, but he wouldn't let me have one. Not for any aesthetic reasons, which would be the obvious uh, reason. Well, I mean, I just the thought of you in a skin-tight leotard going down the mountain at 70 miles an hour as the abominable snowman is terrifying. Do you know why he wouldn't give me one? He said, if, he said, it's a very, very bad idea, Tom, my friend. If I give you this suit, you go an extra 20 kilometers an hour. You really don't want to do this. <laughs> anyway. We did it, and Denarius, the champion, turned around to me and he said, I'm going to go, you're going to follow me, stay, stay three or four metres behind me. Do not, do not let the gap get more than six metres. And I said, why not? And he said, well, because 
when you go over the brow of a hill, you're going so fast that you want to know which direction you're going in for the next gate, because otherwise you might just take off and go straight into the side. He said, otherwise you won't know where you're going. He said, it's very, very important. So I had to follow this guy. Now, I tell you, I scre- screamed for two minutes. Anyway, sorry. Hotel, wow, hotel. wait, on that note, we need a drink. I need a drink. What are you drinking, Tom? That's I a great story, by the way. Ah, an inspirational drink. It's Monday where I am. So I am finishing off the champagne that I was drinking yesterday at lunch. So I thought that I would recycle and give some inspiration to our listeners and make a Bucks Fizz. It's a very healthy champagne and orange juice. So using my leftovers and not quite breakfast, but you can drink it for breakfast. It tastes just as good. So first of all, you clearly weren't listening to anything Dr. Joffrey had to say to you about the orange juice being worse than cola. And, uh, you know, I never thought of a sort of a, a Bucks Fizz as being sort of sold as a health drink by anybody, actually. It's practical. You can use your leftover champagne and everyone's always got a bit of orange juice in the fridge. That's what I love about Tom. The Snapper has practical advice. In fact, it could be its own podcast. Practical advice by the Snapper. And it's a cocktail. So we Recycling get away. champagne and old orange juice and making a Bucks Fizz, which, by the way, I haven't heard anyone even use the word Bucks Fizz. I, normally it's called a mimosa, isn't it? What the hell? Bucks Fizz? That's, that's like my grandmother called it or something. Oh, it might be old-fashioned, that one. Sorry about that. <laughs> A mimosa, darling. We call them mimosas these days, not Bucks Fizz. That's some horrible <laughs> band that won sort of Eurovision Song Contest in sort of 1986 was called Bucks Fizz. I was rather a fan of that. Anyway, what are you drinking? I am drinking something rather spectacular, which sort of rolls us into our booze news, except it's not spectacular. This is the thing. This is what's so ridiculous. Booze news has become a sort of non-event these days, in large part because there's the news about booze is either quite depressing because the booze industry is sort of suffering and both sort of doing well in interesting ways because of the pandemic, but also being devastating because of the pandemic. I'm drinking what they Hendrix likes to call, Hendrix, the gin maker, likes to call a Luna and tonic. Okay, sort of silence there as you sort of, what is a Luna and tonic? It's basically this new gin that they're launching in January, which is a, a Hendrix Luna Gin. And it's so the Luna, I made the Luna and Tonic, and it's one part Hendrix Luna, three parts tonic, for goodness sakes, which is basically tonic water with a touch of gin. You combine all the things in a highball, which is what I'm doing right here, and then you, you garnish with some cucumber, but you put black pepper in it as well. So it's sort of slightly spicy version. And you know, as far as the booze news is concerned, there are, you know, these alcohol companies, I guess, are trying to do anything they can to reinvent the wheel, right? So never before, I think, last year we saw it happening, and it's now happening all the time. They're trying to do give people a reason to go out and buy a new bottle of something, right? So, I mean, what is Luna Gin, for goodness sakes? I mean, it's basically gin that has slightly different notes. I mean, they advertise this as sort of gentle spice and a subtle floral notes and a soft citrus finish. And by all means, cheers, by the way. I mean, it's delicious. It's very good. It's great gin and tonic. I love it. I just, I find it funny because it's being sold as this lunar gin. And I guess the first full moon of the year is... Yeah, cheers. I believe it's January 28th. I mean, it's all bollocks, isn't it? It's just... What a is, it's being sold for, and it's nothing unusual. And it even comes... Check this out, though. It's quite extraordinary. It comes I'm with... We'd have to say what a load of bollocks, by the way. Am I going to get sued by Hendrix? I mean, no, but... of course you're not. I think what's interesting is it comes with this lunar cocktail kit, 
I mean, I've got to read it to you. I want, I want to get it right so you, you know what this is. I mean, it's Hendrix is inviting cocktail connoisseurs and stargazers alike to enjoy what is quite likely the world's first lunar gin. <laughs> um, Hendrix Lunas offers a delicate balance of gentle spice and subtle floral notes with a soft, soft citrus finish, which I mentioned. And again, it, it is it is actually delicious, so it's nothing wrong with it. It comes with a full moon bathing kit, which includes moon goggles, a lunar blanket, and moon screen lotion. I mean, what, what, is, what are they talking about? Sorry, moon screen lotion. Like, I mean, I, I, perhaps you might get a suntan by the moon, Tom. You're probably the only person I know that would. But, I mean, I just don't know what they're talking about. No, we must ask Henry. I tell you who I think started this, Gwyneth Paltrow and her vagina candle. God, what a segue. There, there you go. I, I like where your mind is going, Tom. No, and then my neighbour did it here with, with my neighbouring farmer. He's opened a farm shop, did a candle called My Bollocks or something. So he <laughs> <laughs> which which apparently is a seriously it's a hot it's a big seller. I don't want to smell anyone's vagina or their bollocks actually. That's really... obviously what the fuck is I mean any of this got to do with what's literally explain Luna Gin to me. This is just ridiculous. It's one of the most ridiculous conversations I've ever had in my life. And if you can't explain if it's got any relation to the, the moon at all unless they make it on the first full moon of the year. No, they just sell it on the first full moon of the year. It's literally a marketing ploy, and that's my point. Everyone is doing what they can to somehow create some kind of new sensation because there's no other way of really doing it. But look, the world is a crazy place. We have a guest on Shaken and Stirred this week who is an extraordinary character who's done all number of movies. I mean, literally tons of movies. We're going to give a little drum roll for this, this gentleman who has been incredibly busy launching his new film. Actor, author, martial arts expert. Our guest this week holds a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu with a passion for the sport that runs deep. He's the founder of HBJJ, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu academy, and his newest film, Born a Champion, which is brilliant, in which he stars and wrote, is based on his own life which means we can't ask him the same question that we normally ask everybody, Tom, right? At the end, we're going to have to think about it. Yeah, yeah. It co-stars Dennis Quaid and tells the story of MMA legend Mickey Kelly, one of the first American black belts in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Both on screen and off, he gives us an inside look at his unwavering commitment to the sport, which goes beyond the peak physical conditioning he has achieved as a byproduct. He calls Brazilian jiu-jitsu his sanctuary, and Cathedral, and today on the Shaken and Stirred show, shares the fundamental ways in which it has changed his life. Please welcome Sean Patrick Flannery. How are you, mate? There you go. I'm very good. Thanks, man. That's a hell of an introduction. That even Ooh. impresses me with myself, man. I'm like, where is this guy? I love it. Welcome. So good to see you. Um, so so love the film, as you know, and we've talked already about this at some point, but this is a whole new uh, venue for me. And this is something I've been doing for a while now uh, with my great friend, Tom Astor, who's an old buddy of mine from school. We've been friends for years over here. So Tom and I, it's, it's why we love Shaken and Stirred because we're old friends. And what I like to do is bring on the best people I ever get to meet onto this show because it's a real if you like, chinwag around a, around a table with, a, you know, over a drink. So on that note, what are you drinking by any chance? I, I don't believe you drink alcohol, do you? Uh, you know, I do on rare, rare occasions. So today for the event, I, I got a, 
a very rare vintage of Indian fair trade cocoa-infused uh, lea crema. And the wonderful thing, for example, wine, I always think wine is a sort of a, a tantric libation. Like the longer you wait, the better it gets, right? Well, that, that's kind of the opposite with me. I like something that almost demands immediacy. Like if you don't enjoy it now, it's gone forever. And this right here is a January 30th version. If I don't consume this before the 30th, it's gone. This is seal test, 1% chocolate milk. And I'm going to crack this baby right now. <laughs> My favorite drink on the planet Earth. Look at you. I can't believe it. Is that over ice? I mean, how do you, how do you take that? Straight. Look at that. Like the bouquet, the brisk, buoyant bouquet is enough to make me rejoice about my release from this prison. And it will guide me like a flight of enraged harpies on my winged trip of vengeance. But that's before he's been, that's why he's not drinking, folks. This is why he's not drinking, because basically, clearly, like Obelix, who fell in the pot of potion and was sort of forever infused with whatever the asterisk was, was trying to take, Chocolate milk does it for Sean Patrick Flannery, people. Cheers, My God, this is... This is chocolate. Sean, when you froze knives and you got knocked off earlier, Sean was saying he's, he's in Toronto in quarantine at the end of a two-week quarantine where he's been stuck in some, as he just mentioned, prison. So he's been, he arrived in Toronto and has been put in quarantine. And apparently today's his last day, so, which is why he's celebrating with that particular vintage of chocolate milk. And I, I, I will tell you, I got this from the private reserves from DoorDash from a very specific 7-Eleven about two blocks away. I'm sure it was like hidden behind Red Bulls and uh, maybe some Diet Pepsi. Did you have to go out and get it yourself then? You, weren't, you didn't have to order it in. You were able to go out and do that. No, 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 DoorDash. I honestly, I, I couldn't leave this apartment. I have not left that front door for 14 days. And I'm not joking. On the East Coast, it's 3-11 p.m. right now. At 6 p.m., I'm free. Fly like a bird. And where am I going to go? No idea. I may just pop my head out and take a breath of fresh air. I don't know. That's how crazy it's going to be. I may wander to the left, to the right. No idea. So you are there because you're making a movie. Look, you have a new movie out, Born a Champion, but you're there in Toronto because you're making another movie. Is that why you're there? And you're in quarantine because that's what the Canadians make you do when you go out there. Yeah, that's what they make you do. And, you know, I'm not supposed to mention uh, what I'm doing, the boys. But uh, it's a TV show on Amazon Prime, The Boys, and it's about uh, superheroes, The Boys. But I'm not supposed to mention exactly what I'm here to do. We won't tell our boys even. In fact, okay, it's good. A <laughs> good. Mum's the Mom's word. Mum's the word. Yeah. No, brilliant, brilliant. So I, I would ask you how Canada is, but you have no idea. You've been stuck in some apartment that they've rented for you, which I hope is halfway decent. It's a wonderful apartment. I've got a wonderful view of an alley with a dumpster. Uh, but I will say this. I mean, it's right in New Yorkville, which is the super, super posh, high-end part of Toronto. It's a beautiful area. I just can't leave. And the apartment's amazing. But I can't leave. I'm sequestered here. Look, I know people have undergone far bigger sequesters than me. It's the least I could do for a quick, easy 14 days. But I am looking forward to just walking, man just walking and looking up at the sky. Well, unfortunately, I just took the liberty of Googling, I mean, not Googling, looking at my weather on the phone. 
if it's still light when you get out today, it's gonna it's a beautiful day and it's only two degrees centigrade. Tomorrow, 100% chance of snow and minus six. So, so, so you're not going to be looking at very much. And and I spend a lot of time in Toronto, so minus six is warm at this time. But then good Wednesday, sunshine and minus 11. So it's t rough with the smooth. I think by Wednesday, you should be cooking on gas. Eh? Well, I, I will tell you this. Coming from Texas, you know, it was amazing to me. I mean, that's Santa Claus. That's the North Pole. That's that's a, a winter wonderland. Like most people are, oh, it's going to snow today. I'm looking out the window every day. And I've been here two weeks. I have not seen it snow yet. And I'm kind of insulted. Coming from Texas, I want to see, I would like to get a couple of blizzards looking out my window. I would honestly stare out the window at the snow falling down. It's not amazing coming from Texas. It's coming tomorrow. Your wish will be granted tomorrow. As soon as I'm free to walk. Your first day out, it's going gonna, it's gonna to snow just for you. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I Listen, I've been watching you do press for your film, uh, Born a Champion. And, I, you know, clearly I've now seen you in your apartment in various spots but where, you, where you sit. And I've noticed it's like everything shy of sort of prison bars. I feel sorry for you. <laughs> Because I know it's not your home, and I, you know, and you've been there with some of your co-stars like Katrina Bowden, who's got, you know, she's in her nice apartment, probably in LA or whatever, and I can see it's her own furniture. And I'm just looking at you on this sort of rental furniture, sitting there, looking somewhat <laughs> awkward. And by the way, not to say that you're getting skinnier, but do make sure you eat properly, Sean, because I, you know, I, you, you might be going a little crazy in this apartment for 14 days, eating whatever they can deliver to you from the DoorDash or whatever the place is. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you this. I've gotten incredibly creative. I mean, my culinary skills were incredibly white belt level. When I walked into the door, I'd say I may be about blue belt. That's the first colored belt you get, by the way, in jiu-jitsu. I've done some amazing things. I also brought my uh, ninja little bullet. So every day I have fresh fruit, vegetable smoothies. I'm, I'm getting really, really creative here. Well, that sounds incredibly exciting to have a smoothie um, while stuck in an apartment and, and all the rest. But tell us, let's move on. Let's talk to us about Born a Champion. So I've, I've had a chance to see it and check it out, as you know, and I love it. And I think it's doing pretty well as far as I can see out there, the, the reviews and everyone's talking about it. They all seem to be really enjoying it. So congratulations. But this is a film that you wrote, correct me if I'm wrong, in, in 2007, right? And you wrote it. It's really your own life story, no? C certainly there's some common threads in my own life. Right. But uh, I wrote this from a place of pure fiction. I, I invented the character and I wrote it in such a way that I wanted people to believe that this guy really existed. But it is a large part of my life. That's the area that the, the era that I grew up in jujitsu. And I sat down in 2007, sat down, I laid down, I was in bed one night and I wanted to write about the things that were most pungent in my life. And that ended up being faith, family, fatherhood, legacy, and love. And I wrote about all those things, of which jujitsu is a huge part of all of those in my life. And I know it's hard to equate uh, for the layman a martial arts, all of those things, but it's true. And the jujitsu mat specifically, it's, it's responsible for more of the things that I'm proud of and that have enhanced my life than almost anything else, it, it, at least anything else that's tangible. And um, I wanted to tell that story, and ho hopefully it came across in the film. But that's what I sat, sat down to write. It did very much so, but I, you know, I, so 2007, that's quite a time till now, right? So you did, was it a question of, were you trying to sell this film ever since or, or, or did it 
all of a sudden you were like, the time is right and you went out and pitched it. At what point did you, were you like, okay, the book's gonna, I wanna make this into a film? That's an interesting question for me, just for me to force some introspection because I'm so not a salesman. Things that I'm passionate about, now maybe you can see that passion and maybe that in turn sells you on something that I believe in, but I'm just not a salesman. I'm not the guy that cold calls. I'm not the guy that, uh, hey, I got a script, would you read it? Because I've been on the receiving end of that. One of my producing partners, the first person that ever read the story, Paul Alessi, I, I gave it to him and I let him handle those things. So he pursues you know, financing and trying to make believers, people to read the script. I, I found myself, he and I both, in a, amongst some people that uh, led us to believe that they're interested in this type of thing. They read it and they said, hey, let's make this. I'd love to tell you, I'm such a persistent salesman that I got it made, but it, it, that's not the way it is. I, I love to write. I, I feel very strongly about some of the things that I write, but I got to put it in somebody else's hand to go, hey, hey, can I get you to read this? No? Okay, how about you? Can I get you? You know, I, I just, I'm not that guy, but it got in the right hands and we got it financed. And uh, we, we went a little outside of the box. We got it financed by Lucas Oil. They make uh, petroleum additives for race cars and Forrest Lucas his wife, Charlotte Lucas, and fourth son, Morgan Lucas. They read the script, and they loved it. And they gave me an opportunity to, to do something that's a little bit outside of Hollywood and to, to stay true to the original vision. And I'm, I'm grateful for them. That's been my mistake, you know, Sean. I have been taking my scripts to people like, you know, MGM to see if they would appreciate it. What I should have bloody well done is gone to freaking Dwayne Reed and tried to sell it to them. They freaking get my script. You know, that's, that's how we should get financing. I love it, mate. You know what's funny about that is it's almost like the studios have an algorithm. It's almost like they say, okay, by page 15, we need uh, this. We need five variables. One is an attractive female, an attractive male. We need uh, a problem that involves one of these three political climate elements. One of these, and if it doesn't fit that mold, but when you, when you show it to a layman, all they do is apply their good meter. That's it. Yeah. Did I read this and was I moved? I don't care if it got to the point by page five or page 10 or page 15. They read it and go, wow. Or they read it and they go, didn't move me. But I find that the studios apply a little bit of a different recipe. I, I think that's healthy. I think you want the people that don't understand what, what are the rules that, you're that, that, that are required for you to like a film? All the people that watch movies, all they know is, did I fall in love with it or not? That's all they know. They, they, don't, they don't take the time to extrapolate why. Had they ever made a movie before, Sean? They've made a few, but, but this was a very different outing for them. And I'm, I'm grateful that they took a shot on something like this. I really am. I love the fact that, that guys like this actually kind of go off from their main business you know, making additives for race cars and, and, you know, going to making films. It's fantastic. How did that come about? Were you introduced to them or did you know them before? You know, I got hired to do just as a gun for hire, as an actor. Didn't write this, didn't do, had anything else, nothing else to do with it. I got hired to do one film that was uh, called American Fighter. And uh, they liked that. They hired me again to do a film called Lady Driver. And, and they were responsible for those two films. And that was my initial introduction to them. That was when I first met them and realized that they were actually making movies. Is it like they're, they're sort of almost like angel investors? 
but of of movies, right? There's sort of you know when, when you're one's try, out there trying to invest in in a in a startup company, you're looking for sort of the friends and family round type of situation. It, it's, it seems like that in a way, but on, on a much larger level, making movies. And I have heard of this sort of stuff happening. I mean, it's you don't really think about it often, but we, when you're talking about indie movies and sort of smaller budget movies, this is often quite often the case, isn't it? You're sort of going around, not exactly with a hat in hand, but there is a sort of situation where I've got to make this movie. And you know there are people who all of a sudden, like you said, read your script, read your story, and it simply resonates with them, and it doesn't have to fit the the classic format mold recipe that the big players need or want or require, right? So you can actually potentially make a good movie that is outside of the box. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, like I said, there's always a recipe with studios. They 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 automatically when they read a script, the first thing they're thinking about is how am I going to sell this? What am I going to hang my hat on as a marketing element? Do I have a huge name? Will the movie poster have? you know, a gun pointing right at them. That's a big sales. I, you know, th- there's a number of things. But outside of that, at the end of the day, for me, being a viewer, I don't need any known actors to be in a film if the story is absolutely amazing. I don't need to recognize any faces. I don't need there to be a specific type of subject matter. I just need to fall in love with that story. And I've heard stories in every genre that have moved me, that, that should be made into films. And then sometimes I've seen movies and big budget films, I'm sure you have as well, where you're pressing your temples going, how did this ever get made? And everybody has stories like that. So sometimes I think to get away from that recipe, because certainly we don't have the funds to go and have a, a Brad Pitt film, you know, Born a Champion starring Brad Pitt, that's a very different budget film. So sometimes you have to try and get it financed on the merit of the story and stay true to the story and pump all of your money into the story because make a mistake, you know, budgets for films, that's, that's an incredibly nebulous term. Like you could make any film out there for $50,000. Now it'd be a very, very different film, or you could make it for $50 million. Money can be placed in various parts of filmmaking that ends up with a very, very different result. And so, yes, it frees you up when you get your financing from somebody who isn't automatically trying to sell it. There's far fewer list of demands. Here's the money to go make it, but I need these 12 things. You know, it's the age old adage, you know, uh, here, we're going to tell the story of Ecclesiastes. Okay, I'll fund it. But can they be in Hawaii and in mohair bikinis? You're like, uh, I, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know if that works, but, uh, you know, th- th- those are the problems that you come up against. So to free yourself of that, I mean, you'd never have to satisfy anybody if you had a, a fat wallet and bank account. But unfortunately, very few people have. That's why, uh, you know, you are left to the demands of the financier at times. That being said, you mentioned sort of certain criteria which they, they sort of look for. And you sort of said famous actor, beautiful lady, perhaps a gun pointed to camera. I mean, you, your, your film sort of has a lot of those things in it. I mean, just just FYI, right? Because first of all, it's... MMA and, and what have you, and you're in there, and, and it's there's a, there's that whole kind of jujitsu action aspect to it. You've got Dennis Quaid, who's also in it, who's a well known, famous actor, and you've got Katrina Bowden, who's a beautiful woman playing the role. So it does actually have a lot of the, which again doesn't actually necessarily make it a better movie, but I do think because I I just think it's a great story, and I think you did a really great job writing it, and it it is a both an action story and a love story, uh, which is great too. Which I, again, I'm sure. You know, the reviewers love that kind of combo of things. Um, you know, you talked about Brad Pitt for a second there as well. And I'm like, 
eh, Brad, I don't think he could do what you do. He doesn't move like you move. You know, in a way, this is a movie which only a I don't think a lot of people could do the way you did it. I mean, I know that I'm asking you this question, but it's kind of true, no? Well, you know, certainly the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu skill set is, is, is rare, but there, there, there would certainly be ways to cheat around that. Now, at the end of the day, I wrote it. I'm passionate about it. I don't know who else would read it and fall in love with it. All I can do is be true to myself and write what moves me. I'm also a businessman. Make no mistake, as much as, as, much as I, I love this and it comes from my heart, if Brad Pitt would have read it and said, hey, man, I'd like to do it, I would have sat the fuck down and said, hey, we're making a Brad Pitt movie. You know, at the end of the day, I'm a businessman. So I get it. But getting it into, you know, big name, A-list hands, that's a, that's a very, very difficult task. Um, we got lucky with somebody like uh, Katrina Bowden. She's on 30 Rock. I mean, she's on Bold and the Beautiful Now. She's gorgeous. Reno Wilson who's been in everything. If you hadn't seen him do Louis Armstrong, do yourself a favor. You know, Maurice Comte, Dennis Quaid. These are all people that came because, the, you know, I'll tell you, as an actor, we do, we do films for three reasons. I mean, it'd be great to get, uh, you have to have one of the reasons satisfied. It'd be great to get two. Hit it out of the park if you get three. You either do it because the material is amazing or you do it because the people are amazing, meaning other actors or an amazing director, or you do it for money. I'll give you an example. If Martin Scorsese called me and said, hey, I want you to be in my new film, but I'm not going to let you read the script and I'm not going to tell you the cast, I would say, yes, yes, Martin Scorsese, I will do your film. Conversely, if they say, I'm not going to show you the script, I'm, I'm not going to tell you what you're going to get paid, but you're going to do a film with Leo, Brad Pitt, Angelina, jo yes, fine, yep, I'm in, done, sold, you know, et cetera. So it, it, it'd be great to get all three. All three are, are rare. You know, we always do them for one one of those three. Luckily, they, they read the script and something in it resonated with them and they, they jumped on board because we didn't have a, we didn't have a Brinks truck to back up to their garage, you know? <laughs> that always helps, by the way. So you've done a lot of movies, right, in your, in your career. Can you take us back to when you first started, like, okay, I'm going to become an actor. I mean, I, this, it's kind of a big decision. It's like, I, oftentimes people often say, I mean, I, having worked in the fashion industry for so long, you know, people often say, oh, I want to be a model. And I'm like, well, it's kind of like being an actor. As you can count on a few hands, you know, how many people are really successful at it, right? And there's a, there's a lot of people who, who sort of want to be in the industry. It's a bit different in acting. There's more people, in, in, I think, involved at the high level, but it, it's somewhat similar. I mean, talk, to, talk us through how you first got your first break and, and you know, and that sort of thing. Well, the, the true story, hard to believe, I was going to University of St. Thomas studying business with folks on law. And I saw the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen at the time leaving a building every Monday morning. So I did what any red-blooded Texan does. I went to business affairs and I dropped an English class and I signed up for whatever the fuck they were teaching in that building. And it ended up being the theater department. So I, I went in there and I fell in love with acting. I was in every play that University of St. Thomas did until I left. But the prospect of moving to L.A. and being gainfully employed repeatedly and consistently in the acting industry was a little bit too on the subjective side for me. Like, I'll give an example. If I was in the Olympics, I want to be Usain Bolt. I don't want to be a platform diver that's being judged by eight people. I want it to be absolute and measurable. Usain Bolt, if you break the tape first, you win. Nobody's criticizing, going, well, Usain's fast, but his elbows are a little floppy. Nobody says that. He, you either win or you don't. Uh, so what I did is I wrote a piece of children's theater, and I'd written all through university. And I, I 
packed up my car, went out with 686 bucks. I still remember the dollar figure to the day, prepaid for three months in an Oakwood apartment. And I went out there knowing that I could save my money, rent out a theater, a playhouse and produce this play because that was objective. I could measure it. I knew I could achieve that. That doesn't mean that I didn't want to be an actor. It doesn't mean that I didn't think that was achievable because without sounding arrogant, I thought I was good. I thought I was a good actor. Um, so I went out there to produce this play. And then in the middle of that, an agent, Natalie Rawson, saw me and she goes, hey, would you mind if I submitted you on some commercials? And I said, yeah, if it supplements my income with writing and producing, be sure. Next thing I know, I got a handful of those. And then she goes, let me submit you on some theatrical as well. Theatrical means TV or movies. I said, yeah, if it supplements my income. You're Next thing I know, I was on a plane to go to London and shoot young Indiana Jones. The writing took a back seat, but I, I actually moved out to LA to be a writer. Now, it's taught me a lot of things. One of the main things that it taught me is that that's not out of reach. While it is true that there's probably, I don't know, a million actors in Los Angeles, I'm not trying to be offensive, but the vast majority of them suck. And what I mean by that is the vast majority of them didn't move out there to pursue acting. I'm not kidding when I say I was waiting tables and one, one, a, a fellow busboy saw me in a commercial and he honestly went, you know what? I think I'm going to get an agent. That, there's no barrier to entry. You have people trying to get gainfully employed in this industry that thought about it yesterday. There's no preparation. There's no developing a skill set. They just on a whim. And that's where the largest percentage of the million actors in LA are housed. And as an afterthought, it's like saying, you know what? I just found a scalpel. I think I'm going to do some open heart surgery. Well, you're probably not going to get hired a lot to do the open heart surgery. Not a lot of effort went into preparation and people are going to find out pretty quickly. So what might be a little bit daunting going out there and trying to be one in a million, it's really not like that because there, there's not a large percentage of people that take it seriously, uh, are punctual, are professional, and can get the job done in a finite amount of time. And I, I found that to be true. If I'd have known that, I, I would have actually moved out to L.A. and pursued being an actor. But it just it seemed so low percentage to me coming from Texas. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned young Indiana Jones. I mean, I love that. That was that was really great. And it must have been a, a bit of a a springboard for you. Was it at that time? I mean, it, it was kind of a cultish kind of type of thing. And, you know, clearly. You know, anything that has even a connection to someone like Harrison Ford, although I know he wasn't exactly connected to that project, immediately sounds like sort of almost mythical because he's a sort of a, a bit of a mythical character, I would imagine, in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, Harrison Ford, in my opinion, he's like one of the last iconic actors that we have. I mean, right. he's a true Hollywood, he's a movie star. He's not a, he's not a marquee player actor, he's a movie star. But when I got that, Young Indiana Jones, I mean, I, was, I, I knew I was going to get fired. I knew for a fact that as soon as they realized this kid's never done anything before, some kid from Texas. And if you look at the cast sheet, it's Vanessa Redgrave, Christopher Lee, Elizabeth Hurley, John Patrick, who, who is this guy? And I went out to Leonard and certainly, you know, I, I wish more people had seen the show because at least stateside, 17 people saw it. And nine of those are my mom. I counted her eight additional times. So nobody saw the show. Uh, having said that, I mean, it was film school 101 for me. I mean, I learned what a key light is. I learned how to load a eight millimeter mag blindfolded. I, I, I learned about filmmaking by doing Young Indiana Jones. Worked with an amazing DP, amazing directors. Was it not available in the US? Because I mean, in the UK, we all watched that show. 
No, yeah, it was available, just nobody watched it. I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding. I don't, I can't tell you exactly what the ratings were, but uh, nobody watched it. And uh, I believe they wanted to cancel it halfway through the first season, but George was hanging, you know, future uh, Indiana Jones movies and future Star Wars movies over the studio's head. So they let him keep going with the TV show, even though it didn't garner the necessary viewership. Uh, that's, that's, that's what I've been told. And I, I think that's pretty true because they did keep it going. And we ended up making, I believe, 52 episodes of that, but incredibly grateful. I mean, I worked with Terry Jones from Monty Python, some amazing, you know, Simon Winsor, some amazing directors, some art house directors, some big budget directors, some names that dwarfed some little dude from Texas. It was a, a, a huge inauguration into real filmmaking in Hollywood. And I, I mean, it, it, it's, it's opened every door that's open to me today. Although nobody saw it, having done that and, and having been associated with George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, even though nobody saw it, it, I saw it. it got me. Well, I appreciate it, brother. I appreciate it. <laughs> but it got me in the door. I mean, it made, it made people take a meeting with me and it got me further audition. No, it's amazing. What do you think makes a successful film then? I mean, what your opinion? I mean, that's an interesting thing because like you said, there's all these names attached to it, well-known directors, producers, everyone else who's out there, actors, yet somehow not successful. What is it that you think? Is there, is there a magic formula? What do audiences look for? And, what are, or, and is that also a part of why this recipe is so important that we talked about? Well, I, I have my opinion. I'll tell you my opinion. The story is the present. Everything else is wrapping paper. And the proof is in with the internet. You know, there are YouTube videos with, you know, 50 million views. You don't know who's in it. You don't know who's starring in it. Who shot it? It was shot on a grainy iPhone, probably a 2006 iPhone. It was, wasn't was lit correctly. There's no name players. But the story, what's going on, is so important and engaging, you don't care if there's a marquee player. Now, when you need a marquee player is if, the story is not powerful enough to warn our attention on its own. Now, marquee players are what marquee players are for a reason. They're very good. They're usually incredibly good actors. So it behooves you to cast them if you can, regardless, even if you have an amazing story to start off with, man, you can just build and add wonderful wrapping paper on it. But no amount of great casting is going to fix a bad story, in my opinion. Conversely, there are some amazing films that I've seen where I don't know a single name in it, and it didn't detract at all. They're stories that I've loved that way. No, that's interesting. That's very interesting. You're, you're right. I've never even thought about it in the, the social media aspect. That's an interesting take you just gave me there, Sean, because you're, you're absolutely right. There are all these people you've absolutely never heard of on YouTube and what have you with sort of millions and millions of views. And you're like, well, how is that possible? But there's something about the dyna dynamism of that kind of, whether it's the clip they put on the front or you know, like also like that kind of marketing too. I mean, that very first frame has to sort of grab you, right? So there's a magic to understanding that part of it too. I, I believe half the world has seen Charlie bit my finger. You know, it, it, that's not a, he's not a name child actor. He's just some adorable kid that, that came up with an incredibly genius line and was scared and panicked and tattletaling. And it was incredibly engaging. If you can harness that, you don't need anybody else. You don't need the cinematography to be amazing. You can almost hardly make out what you're seeing. Now, granted, beautiful cinematography will make it even better. 
But at, at the core, yeah, I mean, you're a, you're a, a modeling photographer. You're at the peak of your field, highly regarded. But if the source material, what you're photographing, isn't engaging on its own, no amount of exposure trickery is, is going to – it's like somebody said, what's the best camera in the world? The one that you have on you when cool shit happens. Right. That's the best camera in the world. Same thing you said for story. Nigel will be confused. And Nigel has been always wondering about his like viewership and stuff on his on his Instagram. And <laughs> you know, I, I I so regret this is a podcast because you're gonna be able to see this, but but anyone listening to it, it's not. But I sent him this picture earlier on, and I think half Nigel's problem maybe is the story and the content of what he's putting on Instagram, but I don't know if you can you can you see that? <laughs> yeah. What am I look who is that guy? There's a photograph of me trying to grab the uh, the, the fat Jewish is his name on Instagram, but he's wearing a tiny little outfit with a tiny, and it looks like I'm grabbing in between the legs, although I'm not. But that did extremely well, by the way. That's sort of that's what goes viral, Tom. There's the story right there. What is happening? That's exactly Sean's point. No, who knew a package check would be that appealing? Who knew? Yeah. I don't think that guy's going to win any prizes for um for Brazilian jiu-jitsu. <laughs> no time soon. So let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about your jiu-jitsu and what have you, because it's, I think, do you have two gyms now, or two studios in, in the U.S.? We have one in Houston now. The first one I started, Hollywood Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, on Sunset Boulevard in 2003. It has been closed now for two months because of the shutdown. Mm. It's illegal for us to sell the only thing that we sell. And that's been illegal now for almost a year. Crazy, isn't it? Absolutely bonkers. So t talk to us about, you know, you're, you have these, this gym, you're, 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 obviously it's a large part of your life, this Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and it's, you talk about it as almost a, like a religion. You know, you've got your kids involved in it. They seem to be loving it. It's, it's a, a, a big part of your DNA, it seems, no? Oh, without question. It has. It's been my priestless church, my sanctuary. It's been, in a nutshell, part of my salvation. It really brought space and time into a manageable volume for me. It's tested me. It's put hurdles in front of me daily. And it's, it's really anesthetized me to all the adversity that you encompass in life because it does it in very real time. You know, when people say, oh, you know, I, I had a negotiation. and Man, that was a fight. Well, it's metaphorically a fight. But what you do on a jujitsu match is a fight, and you do that daily. So then when you encompass something that's a metaphor for a fight, it's 70% of the effort. And I've found that just that, that having something to chase every day that gives me a new reason every morning when I wake up to keep showing up just kind of keeps me alive. I've seen a lot of people my age that kind of do this in their life. They kind of go, ah. And they just sort of let go of that rope they're hanging on to. Jiu-jitsu has never let me let go. It's, it's given me something to pursue every waking moment of the day. It has made every aspect of my life better. And it's not even to take, take into consideration the real-world application of the skill that you're developing. I mean, it's something that you can carry around in your back pocket every single day that eventually, unfortunately, in most lives, you're going to be asked to use it. And if you don't have it, something can be broken. Large, largely, it'll be your will. For, for those of us who, don't, who aren't well-versed in, in all the different martial arts, very basically, what are the origins of jiu-jitsu and what is the Brazilian, the difference between, you know, for the, for the two? Well, that, that, that's a good question, and it really depends on who you ask. But yes, jiu-jitsu is primarily a self-defense martial art. Now, it can be 
used incredibly aggressively and unilaterally as well. But uh, the basis is for protection and self-defense. There are a couple of different schools of thought, of thought now, especially in the current era of jiu-jitsu, where a lot of uh, schools have veered off into a sport and a point-collecting aspect. And there's the old school that is simply relying on defending against punches and striking and ending a fight quickly and efficiently without taking any damage. Basically what it looks like, to the layman, it looked like wrestling, but it does incorporate joint locks, bone manipulation, and chokes. So your objective is to render your training partner or your adversary completely incapable of doing you any harm so you can extricate yourself from a situation and protect yourself or protect a loved one. And the first time that I fell in love with it, I'm a lifelong martial artist since I was nine years old. The first time I trained jujitsu and everybody coming up in the Bruce Lee era is always searching for that magic art. Cause I grew up in an era where if you had a black belt, ah, oh, you could fight five guys. You could take on 15 guys. That guy's a black belt. Well, you didn't even have to know what the, what the black belt was in. Nobody even knew the difference between Aikido, Kempo, Jeet Kune Do, Kung Fu. It, it just meant black belt. Black belt just meant you were lethal. That's it. Well, I went through a bunch of martial arts. And the first time that I trained in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was after UFC number one, where we had all seen Hoist Gracie, the first, to American knowledge, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioner, fight a number of different martial arts. And he came out victorious in convincing fashion. So every martial artist that I knew about was dying to train this Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and find out if it really was fake or if it really had a, a power that we'd so far not found the first time I trained it. I was doing triathlons at the time. I had competed at the highest level in, in sports since I was six years old, went to the Junior Olympics in track, and we clapped hands first time I sparred. And I sparred with the first colored belt you get. The belt system goes white, blue, purple, brown, black. I sparred with a blue belt. I've always been about 170 pounds. The blue belt that I went with, Matt Akins, is still a very dear friend of mine today. He was about 135 pounds soaking wet. And when, when it came time to choose a partner, I picked Matt. I didn't do that to be a bully. I did it because I wanted to see if there was any truth in this martial art. Well, this guy took me down, took my back, choked me, shoulder locked me, elbow locked me, wrist locked me, knee barred me, heel hooked me, and there's nothing I could do about it. The clouds opened, and the martial arts truth that we'd all convinced ourselves we already knew, I realized was absolute bullshit. And I'll tell you this from my heart. It may bend people the wrong way. But if you take at a common strip mall, you know, there's a grocery store and then some, what we call them McDojos. They're almost like fake martial arts. You take one of these black belts who's, I don't know, you know, sometimes seven years old. If you can achieve a black belt at seven years old, it must not be that difficult to learn. This martial art was the first time that I got comprehensively dominated repeatedly, and I didn't even have a roadmap or recipe on how to defend it. And there's two types of people in the world. The type of person that says, well, in a street fight, I would have groin shot, eye gouged. And then there's a ladder that says, no, if I met this guy in a dark alley, he would leave with every one of my material possessions. And I was in the latter category. I said, here, that's my checkbook. What do I need to give you to obtain this power over another mortal? And I basically camped out at the Hicks and Gracie Academy for the next number of years because it blew my mind like that. And pretty much every jujitsu practitioner has the same story. It's wow. crazy. It's 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 bonkers, and I and I I know how you see how rattled up you get too. I love it, Sean. Your your passion show, comes out even stronger. I mean, even when you talk about movies, you get passionate. 
chocolate milk, you're even more passionate. But when it comes to jujitsu, you you know you blow a casket, and, I, and it's and it becomes all very personal, which is also very interesting. Like you start to talk about your family and defense and what have you, and not to get extra personal, but. Were you bullied at some point? Did you feel that? Because it, it sounds like that, I mean, I'm not really ever too concerned about seeing someone and worrying about taking care of my family, but that's partly, I'm also a big guy and I do feel protective. And there, you've said, I've heard you say before too, like, you know, you walk into a store and you can't help but eyeball people in, in, the, in the place that potentially could be a threat and, and it's sort of normal, common kind of behavior. And I, and I, I actually do probably think that's probably true. I mean, I think we, whether we do it all the time, 100% or, you know, if you, you can just feel the vibe and somebody just clocks you and just takes you from up from, you know, top to bottom. And then, you know, it's, it's very animal, isn't it? It's very sort of basic, but it, it does happen. But it, it, I'm just curious, we, we, you know, this, this aspect of your, you know, desire for self-defense and protecting your family, does it come out of anything else that, 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 that is part of your life? It comes out of a lot of aspects of my real life. Obviously, every every decision I make is based on past occurrences, and and I'll I'll, I'll reverse engineer this a little bit with my kids. I'll give an example. For me, you, you're hard pressed to find any parent that disagrees that you should educate your child's brain. You should teach them math and reading and writing. You're hard pressed to find any adult that disagrees with that, but you'll find plenty of adults that don't agree with sports should be mandatory. I believe every single day we do four things. We eat good, we sleep good, we train our body and our mind. Now, here's another thing. A couple of things in my, in my household that are not electives. Swimming is not an elective. My kid is going to learn how to read, write, and do math, but they're also going to learn how to swim. I'm never going to put a child out into the world that could fall off a boat and die simply because I was negligent. It's never going to happen. And this may ruffle feathers as well. But not only that, I don't believe that child, I should put somebody out in the world only capable of saving themselves. I want a child on that boat that if someone else falls off, that child can save them. In the same respect, yes, it's easy to go through life and not get in any fights, but occasionally you may be able to walk away from anything, but that requires a dent in your will. If you do it more than once, that dent will eventually break. I don't just meet, need my children to go out into the world and protect themselves from physical harm, but I need my child to go out into the world and be able to protect somebody else that can't protect themselves. Yes, you're absolutely right. It may be easy to go through life and never get in a fight, but that takes a very, very different type of cheek that I'm incapable of turning. And occasionally I want somebody that's incapable of turning the other cheek. Sometimes it's wonderful to be the bigger person. Sometimes, unfortunately, it's necessary to choke a motherfucker unconscious. And I firmly believe that. And they may bend people the wrong way. But I want my child to be able to take up for somebody that can't. Not just to protect themselves, but I want them to have such a command of self-defense and such a command of the water and the ocean that if somebody else is in harm's way, they can pull, without putting themselves in danger, they can pull that person to the side. Same thing in self-defense. I firmly believe that. Have you ever had to actually exercise your your um, your self defense, or do, pe or do people just hear you hear you speak and go, "There comes Sean Patrick Flannery. He's going to flatten me if I even look him up and down the wrong way in the in the grocery aisle." Jesus Christ, he's after the chocolate milk. Put it back, darling. Put it back. No, you know, you know. It, it, the, the truth be told, I, I did. I grew up in Texas, so I, I did get in a lot of fights. But I will say this: the fights we got into in Texas, it's crazy to think, but they were gentleman fights. For example. 
one person was going to leave with an open nose, a, a bloody eye or a broken lip or maybe a missing tooth. But Nigel, if you and I were kids and you showed up behind the 7-Eleven with eight of your friends and I showed up behind the 7-Eleven with eight of my friends, if I picked up a rock and hit you, my own friends would beat my ass. That's the type of Texas integrity that went into fighting at, at, at my youth. Nowadays, man, the kids are expected to pick up rocks and kick them when they're down and, it, it, and curb stomp. It's just a very different type of fighting. But yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't wear that as a badge of pride. I'm not happy that I got into a lot of fights, but there was a, a, a fighting culture. But, but it was a very different type of fighting culture. No one would take it too far and maim somebody. It was a pride. Like, okay, let's shoot free throws. The winner gets to be right. Okay, well, let's go fight. The winner gets to be right. Nigel and my boarding school, English boarding school fighting is, is a bit like that. But it but he used to take it a bit far. But and his speciality is his speciality was because of his size at school, his speciality was being able to like hold you down and tickle you. It's all about tickling. And he never knew when to and he still to this day, I swear to God, he doesn't do it so much anymore because I not kick his ass, but he still tries it and it's the tickle. He could literally the only martial art he knows is the tickle. Anyway, and, he's, and I can see him sitting there, you know, doing these things on his rowing machine all the time and putting pictures of himself, you know, the kind of drinking health drinks and like rowing away. And I can see him sitting there right now thinking, I've got, I'm going to have to get him. I'm this telling you, Sean, you've got to try it out. It's a whole new martial art. The tickle monster. You I might, it it. Every time some big guy comes up to you, they're going to kill you and you grab him and tickle them under the armpits. All of a sudden they hit the ground, pretty much wet themselves and all of and it's a disaster. You've, you've ruined them morally personally, in many ways, all at once with one single move into the armpit. Genius. I, I've been on the receiving end plenty of times. My, my dad used to hold me down and go, here comes the tickle finger of fate. The tickle. Oh, yeah. and, and he wouldn't even, he wouldn't even touch me. He'd just get close to the ribs and not even touch it. But I would be so paralytic with laughter, not even touch it. So I've been on the receiving end from a black belt. I use that against like an eleven-year-old, and it still works. I tried it the other day. The tickle finger, the fig, or in my case, the finger of tickle, which does collapse. <laughs> and all you all you have to do, still to this day, all you have to do is just don't you don't even discuss it. You just put your finger up, and that and then just <laughs> and that's it. It's a game over. Yeah, I love it. You see, we all have our own martial arts. Although I must say, in the UK, you know, when Tom and I used to have a, a sort of a, an issue, it would be like, okay, we'll we'll do a duel at dawn. You know, you pick your weapons and you meet each other and you back up away from one another. Then you turn around with your tickle finger and come right at one another. You know, it's a completely different, very British way of fighting. But I'm, I'm glad that we've, we've managed to share on this level. Sean, congratulations on everything. Congratulations, you know, on Born a Champion. Um, good luck with the film. Before we let you go, we've got, we have something we call Last Orders on Shaken and Stirred. It's a little rapid fire question. It's pretty simple stuff, but I think you can handle it. Lay it on me. Western or sci-fi movie? Western, without question. And why is that? Well, because it strips down. It strips down everything. There are no gadgets. There is no wrapping paper. It's just mano a mano, man against man, ideal against ideal. When you remove all the ancillary aspects of technology, all you're left at the core is a man versus another man. And there's those conflicts that defy era. And I find that incredibly intriguing. All right. Mayweather versus Logan Paul. <laughs> God, that's a, come on. Resoundingly, Mayweather. So we're going to see this, right? That's going to happen, right? This fight's... It, it, I don't know. Is it? Is it going to happen? 
apparently, $50 million purse. What, what, I, what I'm reading is if it's a real fight, I mean, Mayweather, the experience Mayweather's got, what, I mean, how he's going to keep it going for more than six seconds, I don't know. Well, I will tell you this. I'll tell you this, and this may go against the common grain. If it was a street fight, Logan Paul would wreck him. I will tell you that because Logan Paul apparently has some wrestling. If Floyd Mayweather is a sport boxer where they force you to stay in the pocket, if Logan Paul has high school wrestling and a decent amount, he would destroy Floyd Mayweather in a street fight. I assure you. In a points-based boxing match, yeah, Floyd's going to pepper him and outpoint him till the cows come home. That's not even a competition. But in a real fight, let me tell you, if they met in a dark alley, Logan Paul's leaving with every one of Floyd Mayweather's personal possessions. Oh, there you go. So, not as simple as it sounds. Amazing. No. Well, we have a question we normally ask, which is, in the movie of your of your life, who would you have play you? But you've kind of done, I know it's not the movie of your life, but Born a Champion is it, sort of about you and about your sort of, it's a lot of your experiences is in there. But I guess, is there a film that you would like to make? Is there is there a film that you specifically would love to make yourself or make, make again that you could star in? Is, if there was any film out there that you could star in, what would it be? Well, right now, uh, uh, the reason I know you is a friend of mine, Gia, and she and I are, are converting my book, writing the screenplay, to Jane 2. I would be honored to play my dad or my granddaddy in that. And who would I have played the story of my life? If, if I could cast uh, somebody like my granddaddy, which would be enhancing the role of Sean Flannery considerably just because who he is, uh, that's, that's the gold standard. You know, I, 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 have, I had wonderful parents growing up, wonderful parents growing up. You know, my, my goal as a dad is to leave behind a better version. I won't say my dad and my granddaddy achieved that because I hold them in such high esteem. But uh, certainly that's my goal is uh, to be like my dad and my granddaddy. And uh, uh, right right now, G and myself are, are writing the screenplay to that, and uh, hopefully we'll develop that and find a place for it. Fantastic. Well, good luck with that for sure. We have, we have one more. What's your, what gets your goat and what floats your boat? So many things, almost too many to itemize. What floats my boat? I, I mean, life does. I, I find a reason to show up every day. What floats my boat is, 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 is having this instrument so well dialed in, I've at least reduced the pain that's in my control. I'm not saying I can't. Disease can inflict anybody. But if, if it does inflict me, I'm going to go out saying I did everything in my possible to, ability to ward it off. What gets my goat is when people say, oh, you know, that's too difficult, or I have bad genes, or, you know, you, you just have good bullshit. You just don't do the work. You just don't do the work. And everything in your life will be easier if this is fit. Everything. This works better. Your sleep works better. Everything. But the missing element is desire. Some people simply don't want it bad enough. And they have plenty of time to complain about everything in their life when they haven't at least taken care of what they're in control of. The first managerial position that we're assigned is the manager of this. If you fail at that, I know the common thing is, oh, don't judge a book by its cover. Bullshit. I judge every book by its cover. So that's a reason they put a fucking cover on a book is so you can judge it. If you don't see somebody approaching you and immediately start to quantify 
their ability to do me harm, their ability to provide benefits to me. You're full of shit. Those are your, one of your primal drives. And I'm a big believer in that. Absolutely. Their ability to tickle you to death. I know. I, yeah. I, every time I see you with those big hands of yours flying around, I'm thinking, shit, he's going to tickle me next. All right, <laughs> finally, shaken or stirred? Now, I'll, I'll tell you, if you are a chocolate milk connoisseur, and if you do experiment with like pure chocolate and cocoa in a blender, when you blend it, it is so different than shaken or stirred. I urge you to try it. If you're a chocolate milk connoisseur. Are you saying that we have to we have to put a shake and stir or blended? Maybe we should add that in. But as a metaphor, as a metaphor for life, shaken or stirred. Shaken. I, I think everybody needs a violent little jarring element in their life. Absolutely. I think there's enough delicacy. Sean Patrick Flannery, folks, definitely shaken. And just be careful. If you see him in a supermarket and you think you're going to go for that chocolate milk before him, I would rather stop, bow, let him have it, and then perhaps get your tickling finger out. Um, Born a Champion, it's a great film. Go see it. Lionsgate produced it. Um, it it's, uh, where can people see it? Whereabouts is it available? It's pretty, uh, iTunes, uh, Apple, uh, and also uh, Amazon Prime and places like that, right? Yeah, it's all, all streaming rental sites, but uh, it's also in theaters as we speak right now. I know with the COVID lockdown, there, there, some states are, are thinner than others, but I think it's in you know over 100 theaters across the nation. So you can check it out in select theaters and anywhere you rent movies. Apple, On Demand, Xfinity, iTunes, any of that. Born a champion, people and uh, living a champion's life. Well done, mate. Good luck in quarantine. Uh, hope you get out, you, 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 you know, you bounce out soon. Tonight, it's gonna be rather exciting. Go and play in the snow. All my best to your family and all the rest of it. Take care and look forward to speaking to you again very soon, Sean. Likewise, guys, thanks very much. Thanks so much. Bye, Sean. Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken and Stirred. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. See ya.